From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told and you are among friends. Mary Ruart, Ph.D., the author of Death by Regulation, How We Were Robbed of a Golden Age of Health and How We Can Reclaim It, is standing by. In Hour 2, John D. and the Empire of Angels, Enochian Magic and the Occult Roots of the Modern World with Jason Louv. All right, that's uh, what's in store. Now, again this week, I'm coming to you from my home studio up in Thornhill, so Ian Robertson is behind the audio board in the studio, and live stream producer Ryan White is at his place in East York. Albert once again has the night off. Next week, a special tribute to Nils Hammerin of End Times Press. Some of you may remember Nils. He was a good friend of the program, and he also ran a small publishing company out of Somerville, New Jersey, called End Times Press. In fact, his book, Seal of the End Times, holds a, a special place of distinction in my library just behind me. Nils passed away in April. He was a frequent guest in the early years of my broadcasting career, and he appeared in an episode of my television program, The Conspiracy Show. I believe that was in season one. We did an episode with Nils. It was very sad to hear of his passing again back in April. So next week, I'll dip into the archives and replay, I believe it was my last interview with Nils Hamron. All right, this hour... There are serious problems inside the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. In fact, it's been going on for quite some time. In particular, changes to the FDA Act way back in 1962, which have caused the premature death of about half of the Americans who have died since then. Just think about that. This, according to my guest, Mary J. Ruart, Ph.D., is a research scientist, ethicist, and a libertarian author-activist. Her internet column, Ask Dr. Ruart, is a popular feature of the Advocates for Self-Government Liberator Online e-zine. Her book, Short Answers to the Tough Questions, is based on these and other questions she's received over the years. Dr. Ruart was an adjunct professor, or associate professor of biology at the University of North Carolina in Charlotte. During that time, she served with the Center for Applied and Professional mm-hmm. Ethics, designing a medical research and ethics course from the university. Currently, Dr. Ruart serves as Chair of Liberty International and a Secretary of the Foundation for a Free Society. She's been an at-large member of the Libertarian National Committee, served on the board of both the Heartland Institute, the Michigan chapter, and the Fully Informed Jury Amendment Association. And she is the author of Death by Regulation, How We Were Robbed of a Golden Age of Health and How We Can Reclaim It. Mary J. Ruart, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm fine, and thank you so much for having me on the show. My pleasure. So let's go back to 1962. What changed at the Food and Drug Administration that has caused, for example, such long delays in in bringing new and advanced medicines to the market has caused the price of many pharmaceuticals to skyrocket? What changed back in 62? 
Well, actually, there was a drug disaster in Europe uh, with the drug thalidomide, which was a safer sleeping drug for adults, but it wasn't safe for the unborn. And young women began taking it during pregnancy because they felt that it helped with their morning sickness. And about 10,000 European babies were born uh, missing a limb or two or actually died. And so this was very distressing. The American public found out about it because Life magazine ran a whole spread on these poor, unfortunate children. And so Congress passed the 1962 amendments to the Food and Drug Act, which were supposed to make drugs safer, but they really weren't designed for that. They had been floating around in Congress for quite some time, about three years, I think. And when these amendments passed, they were very open-ended. They kind of metastasized and continue to do so today. They really empowered the regulators and set up the incentives so that regulators want drug companies to do more and more and more testing. So it used to take, before these amendments, it used to take about four years to get a new drug from the lab bench, the marketplace. By the end of the 90s, it was taking close to 14 years, in other words, an extra 10 years for a new drug to get to market. And of course, a lot of people died waiting. I was working with the AIDS drugs at that time, and the AIDS patients knew they couldn't wait. So what they did is they started importing drugs from overseas that they thought might help them. They started taking a lot of nutritional supplements. And in addition, they took the drugs that we were working on in the pharmaceutical firms, and they had a black market chemist make them, and they distributed them throughout the AIDS community. So by the time the FDA actually gave us permission to test them in people, Every AIDS patient in the country who wanted them had already had them, and they were resistant. So we had to wait for new AIDS patients to be diagnosed before we could do the FDA-mandated testing. So obviously the intention back in 62, particularly with the drug thalidomide, that was a success for them in the sense that they obviously prevented a tremendous tragedy in North America, although... There were a few cases because some of the samples of the drug got out. But they used that as sort of their example of this is why we need more regulation. And so they kind of cast too wide a net. Is that the idea? Yes, because actually the FDA was already strong enough to keep it off the market in the U.S. And it did so, not because it suspected there was a problem with pregnancies, but because thalidomide, like all drugs, had another side effect because all drugs have side effects. And the side effect they were looking at was a type of nerve damage. So the examiner was concerned about that, and so she withheld approval. You have another example in the book about a breast cancer screening kit that should have been widely available and could have prevented many, many breast cancer deaths. Talk to me about that. Yes. Well, that was a device. It was basically a silicone pad, I guess you could call it, that a woman would put over her breast. And when she did her self-examination, it would make it a lot more sensitive. It was, she, she was able to feel better if she had a lump. So this was a very big discovery. It was made in the United States, but it was in Europe, I think, almost 10 years before it was available here in the U.S., and that was because the FDA is even harder on devices than it is on drugs. So consequently, 
But it was a real battle to get this on the market. When it was on the market, it was by prescription only. And so, you know, women who might have been able to discover a problem really didn't have that option with this really wonderful device that, that made it much easier to be kept on. Why would a device be held to sort of the same regulatory regime as a drug. I mean, a device like that, unless I'm missing something, wouldn't have some unintended consequence or wouldn't have a side effect, would it? Well, the FDA said it would have a side effect, and the side effect they said it would have is that women would do the breast exam with the silicone pad, and if they missed something, they would have a false sense of security. But, of course, women do breast exams all the time if they're, you know, if they're taking care of themselves properly, because, of course, that's what you do. And, and a lot of women discover those ones. So having a device that makes it easier to detect them isn't going to change anything because, you know, I, I say it will only change it for the better, I should say, because if a woman is examining her breast and she can't feel the lump uh, with her fingers, but she can feel it with this device, it's, <laughs> She's obviously uh, going to be in better shape than if she uses the device. But sometimes the logic that we hear from the FDA doesn't seem to be what we would call common sense. Mary J. Ruart, Ph.D., is the author of Death by Regulation, How We Were Robbed of a Golden Age of Health and How We Can Reclaim It. Uh, now, that very sort of explosive... Um, a comment off the top about half the deaths since 1962 uh, can be premature deaths can be attributed to overregulation by the FDA. Is I mean, is that accurate? I mean, how did you determine that? Well, there's a lot of studies published about the pharmaceutical industry. So what I did is I collected these studies and just put them together, and that's what you come up with because we have a pretty good idea of how many lives the drugs that are currently on the market save. And so if you apply that to the 10-year wait, basically, that we have today, and I, I did it decade by decade, so because it you know wasn't the same every decade, you can calculate right. how many people die waiting. It's about 15 million people. But the even bigger problem, of course, is the loss of innovation. And Depending on how you calculate that, I, I was very conservative. You know, I said, well, let's assume that the drugs we've lost are only 25% as effective as the ones we have on the market. And let's assume we've only lost 50% of them. Again, that's a conservative estimate because the studies show that we lose 50% of our new drugs at uh, mid midpoint or late stage development because the drug manufacturer realizes they aren't going to recover the development cost. So if you take that, that's another 27 million people. And then if you look at how many people died because the FDA didn't allow aspirin manufacturers to advertise in the late 60s that aspirin could prevent heart attacks, that's another 2 million people. So you add that all up and you come out with um, about half the people who have died have lost 11 years of their lives. Or another way of thinking of it is that we're all losing about 5.5 years of our lives just for the impact on drugs. But there's an even bigger impact than that, which I cannot calculate because the studies haven't been done yet. 
Mary, I'll get you to hold on to that last little bit. This is absolutely astounding the way you've broken this down and tragic, to say the least. We'll come back and uh, continue to discuss Mary J. Ruart's work, Death by Regulation. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Just a reminder, coming up in the second hour, John D. and the Empire of Angels with author Jason Louvre. Right now we're talking with Mary J. Ruart. And uh, we are talking about overregulation at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration uh, and how, well, in fact, there's a chapter um, about this in the book, how the amendments are a cure worse than the disease. And uh, she was citing some examples of how regulation has prevented certain uh, medical devices and drugs from getting to market quick enough. Uh, And then the absolutely devastating statistics uh, where uh, approximately one half of all of the premature premature deaths in the United States since 1962 can be attributed uh, to overregulation at the FDA, which, again, prevents uh, innovation, prevents uh, uh, new drugs getting to market quickly enough uh, to save perhaps millions of people. Um, you were talking about uh, innovation and, and how uh, these regulations prevent new drugs from getting to market. Is there an example for uh, uh, of, a, of a drug that has been approved, let's say, maybe even here in Canada or in, in Europe, uh, and it seems to be effective, but it's not available to Americans because of the FDA? Well, actually, I think there's a number of them, but the, the real problem is that when we lose innovation in the U.S., we lose it throughout the world, and that's because about 50% of new drugs are discovered in the U.S. So let me give you an example from my own experience. I actually got a call from the FDA one day, and they said, Dr. Ruart, we are very excited because we understand you filed a patent for prostaglandins and liver disease. Now, prostaglandins are a natural substance, a natural hormone that every cell in our body makes. And the company I was working for, Upjohn, was you know, very much into these things. And so I said, yes, that's true. I have filed for that patent. And they said, we are so excited because there's nothing for liver disease. 100,000 people die every year of it, and we really want to help you get this drug to market. But the problem was that we still had to meet the regulatory demands. And one of those demands is that we have two U.S. studies that have a certain statistical significance. And the problem when you have something really new is that you don't know how much drug you have to give, you don't know how often you have to give it, and so and you don't know how many people you need in the study, you don't know how long you need to treat you know, because liver disease comes about slowly. It usually takes years, and so it's probably going to take years to cure. Well, if you don't know those things and you don't guess right the first time, what happens is you don't get the statistical significance and you have to start all over. And we figured out that if we had to do that for this drug, that by the time we got it to market, it would go generic the first day and we'd never recover our development costs. So we never even started developing it. And recall that earlier I was saying that 
a lot of drugs, about 50% of them, drop out in late-stage or mid-stage development when the company's already spent millions and millions of dollars trying to get it to market. So that really means we're probably losing about 80% of our innovation, which is huge. And, of course, when I estimate for the book, I was very conservative. I used 50%, not 80%, and I used... uh, I use the estimate that they were only 25% as effective as what we have on the market now. So if 27 million Americans have died because of the loss of innovation, that's a very conservative estimate. It's probably more than that. Each of us are probably losing five to ten years of our lives from these regulations. Right. And if this wasn't all bad enough and dire, you point out in your book that not only do these amendments restrict new development and make it almost impossible to get new innovative drugs onto the market and new medical devices, but the amendments also restrict information about disease prevention. In fact, you cite examples where the FDA has actually raided stores and physicians' office who are promoting prevention. That's right. That's right. The the amendments have shifted our whole medical paradigm from inexpensive prevention to expensive treatment. And ironically, you know, we talked about earlier how these amendments were passed to prevent thalidomide-like damage in children, but the amendments actually created the American thalidomide because what happened was we knew in the early 80s that taking folic acid in the first month or two of pregnancy could almost totally prevent neural tube defects which is a type of birth defect that really leaves the child crippled or or the child dies. And because we can test for it in the uterus, when parents find out that their child has this defect, they often abort. So what happened is the folic acid manufacturers, of course, wanted to tell the American public about this wonderful thing. And, and folic acid is a B vitamin for those of your listeners who might not know that. And And so it's, you know, it's, it's something your body's used to seeing. Well, the FDA told the folic acid manufacturers that they'd be prosecuted if they told the American public about this. And then in the early 90s, the Center for Disease Control, which is another government agency, started actually making that recommendation to young women that they take folic acid regularly because, you know, you have to have it usually before you know you're pregnant. By the time you go to the doctor, it's a little late. So... The FDA told the folic acid manufacturers that if they even mentioned the Center for Disease Control's recommendation, they would be prosecuted. And then a few years later, the FDA actually started requiring cereal manufacturers and and other manufacturers of, you know, grain products to fortify their products with folic acid. (laughs) So the FDA knew that this would prevent birth defects, but... The problem is with fortification is you don't know how much you're getting. So American women were not getting the amount they needed, and it showed up in the study. You know, the change in the number of birth defects was not that great. Um, On the other hand, in some other countries in Europe where the folic acid manufacturers could advertise or the government advertised, the number of these neural tube defects dramatically dropped. So I estimate at least. 10,000, perhaps as many as 25,000 American babies were born either with these horrific 
birth defects needlessly, or they were aborted. And so we have our own American politimide thanks to the 1962 amendment. The the FDA, uh, I mean, does it have congressional oversight? Uh, and and uh, if so, where is it? <laughs> well, it has congressional oversight, but the problem is that every drug has a potential side effect. And so what usually happens is if one of these side effects comes to the attention of the American public, Congress beats up on the FDA. So the FDA has learned that really, if it's supposed to only approve safe and effective drugs, it probably shouldn't approve anything. And luckily they don't take that position, but what they do do is they keep asking for more and more and more studies. So not only does the time it takes to get the drug to market increase, but the cost is going up exponentially. You know, manufacturers have a real desire to keep that timeline short because the patent's going to run out, so they want to get the drug on the market quickly. And so they've managed to keep that timeline down to about 13 years. But the costs are not kept down. They are increasing exponentially every year. And so at this point in time, I'm estimating that we're paying 20 to 40-fold as much as we should at the pharmacy today simply because of these amendments. And as I mentioned earlier, they don't make drugs safer. The, the rate of withdrawal of approved drugs after the amendments was about 3.3%. Before the amendments, it was 25 <laughs> So, you know, the, the withdrawal rate hasn't gone down, and that was the promise of the amendments, that the drugs that came to the market would be safer, and so you wouldn't have to withdraw as much. And that hasn't happened. Well, the... The actual studies on the efficacy and safety of a drug, who is now responsible for those studies? Is it the drug companies themselves? And if so, I would think that would be a problem. Well, yes, they've always been the ones responsible. The FDA just tells the drug companies which studies to do. And then it looks over the data that the companies submit. Now, Obviously, it would be better to have third-party testing, and that's what I recommend in Death by Regulation, because if you have third-party testing, you know, you don't have this conflict of interest going on. Uh, but I have to say, having worked in the drug companies, it's not that easy to fudge the data because so many people are handling it. You know, for sure there'd be a whistleblower. But the big problem really is that these studies really are not helping us, as, as illustrated by the fact that the withdrawal rate hasn't gone down. If anything, it's gone up. But I don't really think those numbers are that different. So if, if we haven't improved the withdrawal rate, then we've, we're wasting all our time and money doing these studies that don't do any better uh, than, you know, it did before the amendment. Now, some other countries are smarter about the way they go about it because they know that no matter how many studies are done, there will be side effects because we can't, we simply don't have the knowledge to predict them all. So what they do is instead of asking for more and more and more studies before the approval, they tend to look at what happens in patients after the drug is approved. They try to really keep good tabs on that, and if they see a problem, then they know to take the drug off the market quickly. 
But in the meantime, uh, Europeans are getting new drugs faster than we are because they get through the process quicker because they don't ask for all these extra studies up front. So you know, that's a better way to do it, and that's not what we're doing here. You say that the FDA refuses to obey court orders. What do you mean by that, and, and, and if you could maybe cite an example? Sure. Well, you know, you know, people were very frustrated about this folic acid situation, for example, and some other ones, too, um, showing that fish oil could be helpful and, and things like that. So they actually, uh, a bunch of consumer groups actually sued the FDA on the grounds that you know, this information was truthful and should be available to people. But what ended up happening was, even though the court said yes, the FDA has to allow these truthful statements, and the court ordered the FDA to work with these groups on getting those statements, the FDA refused to do it. So they were hauled back into court a second time. And the court really scolded them and said, you know, you know, either you guys are really, um, you're really negligent here or you're just not paying attention. You know, you're not listening to what I'm saying. And so, you know, the court, court was very upset. But one of the things the FDA has going for it, it has our tax dollars. So if it doesn't like what it's hearing, it keeps going back and appealing rulings until it gets what it wants. And, you know, that's, that's kind of what happened with the cancer patients. You know, they did not want to go through what the AIDS patients went through. They didn't want to go to the black market for their drugs. So they sued the FDA and said it's our constitutional right to try to save our lives, even if we have to use unapproved drugs. And at first the court said, yes, we agree with you. And then the FDA asked the court to reconsider their opinion. And so they did. And this time the court's ruled that Americans do not have the constitutional right to try to save their lives without approved drugs. Obviously, that's precedent now, right? So, I mean, yes. how high up the chain did that go? Did that go to the Supreme Court? No, what happened is the, um, it was appealed, the cancer patients appealed to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court refused to hear the case. So the lower court ruling stood, and the lower court ruling was that Americans do not have the constitutional right to save their lives with unapproved drugs. And because of that, the Right to Try bill that just passed in Congress uh, started circulating among the states because the reaction to that court case was, hey, we really want this. So if we can't get it by suing the FDA, we're going to get it by passing it state by state. The Goldwater Institute was responsible for getting it passed, I think it's 40 states now. And, of course, then Congress took hold of it and has passed it for the entire country. And what that, what that right to try law says and what the cancer patients were suing for was the right to go ahead and take a drug after it had safety testing in humans, but before the effectiveness testing. The problem with right to try, however, is that one of the caveats, one of the requirements that that law has is that the drug has to stay in the FDA's good graces and has to continue along the development path while it's being used by the right to try patients. And the problem with that is that most drug companies are going to 
be, be leery. They're going to say, gee, if we go to this right-to-try patient and we work around the FDA, then the FDA may punish us by dragging their feet on our approvals. And so I think what's probably going to happen is that right-to-try will work for a few patients, but not for many, because most drug companies are going to be afraid to use it, and, and that's very sad. Now, coming along uh, through the Heartland Institute is a similar plan called free-to-choose medicine. The advantage of free-to-choose medicine is that once a drug enters the free-to-choose medicine track, and it enters a little bit later than the right-to-try does, but once it enters the free-to-choose medicine track, it's not necessary for it to stay in the FDA's good graces. In other words, it, it, it might never be approved. That's up to the company if it wants to keep in the FDA track or not. So it could, it could change, it could change the way things are done. And so that's, that's going to be coming along shortly. The book's been published and I know that the Heartland Institute is either to go ahead and start promoting that. Well, that's uh, some encouraging news on that front. We'll take a time out. Mary J. Ruart stays with us. And we are talking about her a new book, The Death or Death by Regulation. We'll come back. We'll talk about uh, supplements and how they make drugs safer and how the FDA is turning foods into drugs. That sounds familiar. They're doing the same thing up here uh, with, with uh, Health Canada. Back with more of our conversation in a moment. The Conspiracy Show continues on the other side. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Hey, I just wanted to remind you of an upcoming event uh, that I'll be a part of, the Alien Cosmic Expo, which is happening June 22nd, 23rd, 24th at the Toronto Airport Marriott Hotel. And that, of course, will feature a who's who of ufologists, Linda Moulton Howe, Stanton Friedman, Richard Dolan, Grant Cameron, Victor Vigiani, uh, and more. And uh, there'll be a roundtable on UFO disclosure happening on the Sunday, the 24th at 1.30 p.m. I'll be moderating that. Again, that's at the Toronto Airport Marriott Hotel, uh, ACE, Alien Cosmic Expo, June 22nd to the 24th, 1.30 p.m. on the 24th. I'll be moderating a roundtable on UFO disclosure. And if you want uh, more information or tickets, you can go to aliencosmicexpo.com. AlienCosmicExpo.com or you can go to the live events page at my website, StrangePlanet.ca. StrangePlanet.ca. We are talking with Mary J. Ruart, PhD, uh, about the, uh, the Food and Drug Administration and uh, regulations which prevent innovation. They drive up the cost of pharmaceuticals. Uh, and um, really, we're discussing how we have been robbed of a golden age of health and how we can reclaim it. Um, Mary, let's talk a little bit about, about supplements. Now, up here, Health Canada has totally revamped uh, the way uh, that uh, that uh, health supplements are regulated, uh, naturopathic medicine and, and alternative medicine really be coming under the spotlight of of Health Canada, and obviously in many cases, you know, we need to be vigilant and and, and regulate supplements as well. Um, what's going on with 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 the FDA because they are now looking at many foods as drugs. 
Well, the FDA says that if you make a health claim for a food or supplement, that it becomes a drug. And, you know, the manufacturer has to make that claim. I should, should point that out. So, for example, when um, walnut growers or cherry growers would put scientific papers on their website and say, hey, you know, the scientific paper shows that these components of cherries or these components of walnuts are healthy for you and, and can help you prevent cardiovascular disease or something like that. The FDA got very upset with them and sent them letters saying that because of the way they talked about their product, it was a drug, and that they needed to go through the same 13-year regulatory process that the average drug does. And, of course, <laughs> you know, they, they can't afford to do that. It's ridiculous. So they stopped telling consumers about the health benefits of their foods. And this is true of supplements as well. You know, we talked about the B vitamin folic acid and how it prevented neural tube defects. This was published in the scientific literature, but the FDA would not allow manufacturers to talk about that without going through all of these 13 years of testing. So, you know, this is this has really hampered our use of prevention in this country and obviously in yours too. It, it's kind of rippling out to the world, and, and it is. There's, there's a, an international movement, Codex, that basically is trying yes. to limit the amount of supplements that you can take without a prescription. <laughs> so it's, and what's really, what's really terrible about this is that prior to the amendments, we were really getting to know that it was important not just to have the minimum daily requirement of supplements and vitamins and minerals, but it was important to get the optimal amount. And I'll tell you a little story about how I really came to grips with this personally is that I was working in the pharmaceutical industry at a time when we didn't have all this genetic manipulation that we have today. And our rats were so healthy. And they were healthy because we had titrated their diet to make sure they had everything they needed. And how are we going to test for new drugs if we didn't have sick rats? <laughs> well, what we started doing is taking away a vitamin or two. And then our rats would get sick just like people do. And so, of course, all the researchers are going, okay, it's very important to have optimal nutrition if you want good health. And so, of course, we were very careful about what we ate. We took supplements, we exercised, didn't smoke, didn't drink very much. You know, all the things that that you would think about doing to stay healthy. It was interesting because uh, the medical doctors in the, in the company, for the most part, there were exceptions, of course, didn't realize this. And so they didn't take supplements. They, they didn't exercise and do all the things that we <laughs> made sure our rats did. <laughs> so, you know, they, they got sick more often. And I think it's very important to realize that we were right on the cusp of putting out this information to the American public, which is why I say how we were robbed of the golden age of health. There was a lot happening in the early 60s, just about the time these amendments were passed. And a lot of it just got buried because of the amendments and because of the kinds of things that the FDA did with the diamond or the walnut 
manufacturers and the cherry manufacturers, and I was thinking of Diamond Walnuts when I said that because um, Diamond actually got sued after the FDA sent the warning letter, and it had to pay out quite a bit of money on, on the grounds that it was fraudulently advertising their product as a food instead of a drug. Oh, dear. Um, so if you, for example, claim that blueberries, I mean, we know they're an anti, a powerful antioxidant, uh, that there are health benefits of a blueberry, that is now considered a drug, and you have to put that through what? Some sort of a double-blind study and yeah, pay for that, that if you're a blueberry manufacturer? So supposedly, yeah. So blueberry manufacturers can't say that. Now, you and I could say it, but a blueberry manufacturer can't say that. And and here's what's happening because of this very irrational... Mary, I'm just... Pardon my interruption, Mary. We're going to break away here. This was a short segment. We'll come back and pick that up on the other side. Death by regulation. Mary J. Ruert, Ph.D., my guest here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Mary J. Ruert stays with us for a few moments yet. And then in the uh, the second hour, we'll uh, delve into the history, the life and times of a fascinating uh, figure, John D., uh, who served in the court uh, of um, Queen Elizabeth I. He was a mathematician, an astrologer, really a scientific genius, uh, but also uh, was very much uh, steeped in the occult. Uh, in fact, had devised, along with another individual we'll discuss, devised a mathematical formula for communicating with the angelic realm. That's uh, all upcoming in the second hour of The Conspiracy Show. Right now, Mary J. Ruart stays with us, as I say, and we're talking about the the Food and Drug Administration and how their regulations uh, ha- has really uh, prevented life-saving information from coming forward. It has, uh, it has, um, uh, obviously enriched pharmaceutical companies. Um, it has caused millions and millions of lives. It has uh, slowed innovation and, um, uh, well, stifled innovation, as I say, things like cancer treatments. And, uh, well, the cost of these amendments just Almost incalculable. Um, we were talking about foods being uh, basically categorized as drugs. The interesting thing, though, is that often these drug companies will turn around and they will sort of synthesize the active ingredients in a certain natural food. The hypocrisy is just ridiculous, wouldn't you say? They have a choice, though, with the way the amendments are structured, because if they they have to tweak something chemically to get a patent. For example, let's take fish oil. You know, there's a really good example of a very important nutritional supplement. So what the drug companies did was they put an extra chemical group on the active ingredient in fish oil, and they did that because then they could get a patent. So two companies did that, and then they went through the development process. And now they are the only fish oil companies that can go to doctors legally and tell them, oh, our fish oil is the only one approved by, only one's approved by the FDA, and, you know, you can take it for this, that, and the other thing. Well, as it turns out, there's a over-the-counter fish oil on the market that has even better purity than these prescription fish oils, but because that fish oil hasn't gone through the regulatory process, 
the person who sells that cannot go to the doctors and say, hey, there's fewer PCBs in this fish oil. This is what your your uh, patient should be taking <laughs> because it's against the law because it hasn't gone through all the regulatory process. And, of course, that prescription fish oil costs a lot more than over-the-counter fish oil does. In fact, my sister uh, was was eligible for prescription fish oil, so she priced it out, and it turned out that her copay would be almost as much, just her copay would be almost as much as what she was paying for the highest quality over-the-counter fish oil. So, you know, it, we're, we're increasing the price of things totally needlessly by putting them through this process, but that's what the FDA now requires if you want to make a health claim for a food. Right. I want to talk a little bit about stem cell research because I'm hearing absolutely remarkable news on this front and how stem cell therapy is being used in everything from Parkinson's to cerebral palsy. I mean, the news is absolutely exciting. But talk to me how these amendments are stifling innovation when it comes to stem cell research. Yes, well, they are. You know, there was a doctor in Colorado, Dr. Centeno, Christopher Centeno, who's probably at the top of the field in the U.S., and what he found is that, you know, he was treating athletes with stem cells, and he would take them out of their body, either from bone marrow, I think that was his preferred, or from fat cells, which some uh, other doctors do, and then inject them into the, the knee or wherever, you know, the patient needed them. But what Dr. Centeno found is that if he took the stem cells and grew them for a week, you know, in a test tube basically, and then injected them back, that the patient would heal much faster. But the FDA said, hey, if you inject the stem cells the same day you take them out, that's medical practice. But if you grow them in a test tube first and then put them back in the same person, well, that's a drug. And now you have to go through this 13 years of regulatory processing before you can do it. And so uh, Dr. Santano, uh, of course, has kept his office in Colorado. He's licensed out other offices. But if you want to get the best stem cell treatment where he grows up the stem cells for a week, you have to go to the Caribbean to do that because he had to move it offshore because of the FDA. What are the costs to the overall cost to healthcare. Obviously, healthcare, social security are two of the biggest expenditures for the federal government. That's right. Are you able to put a price tag that regulations cost the U.S. economy or add to the cost of healthcare overall? Yes, I think you can. And, you know, we spend, at least in the U.S., we spend about 10% of our healthcare dollars on new drugs. But the thing about new drugs is they generally save money. So, for example, when the first anti-ulcer drug, Tagamet, came out, it was very expensive. This is, you know, back in the, I want to say the the 80s. It cost about $1,000 a year, and you probably had to take it for two years. But it was a better choice than a $25,000 surgery, which was the -the state-of-the-art back then, you know, ulcer surgery, and you didn't have to go in the hospital and take off of work and all the other things that you do when you have surgery. So it really saved not only hospitalization, it saved a person from all the trauma of the surgery and lost work time and things of that nature. So on average, I think every dollar, even these 
dollars that we spend on pharmaceuticals that are way overpriced because of the regulations, even then we save about three dollars for every dollar we spend, um, you know, on other medical costs when we take a drug. So it's, it's much better if you can take a drug and then have a surgery or hospitalization. So drugs actually save money, but what we're doing is because it's costing so much these days to get a new drug through the market, we aren't developing drugs that we could, you know, like like the liver disease example I gave you earlier. We aren't developing these drugs, and so people are still paying high health care costs when they might not need to. We just have a few moments, Mary, but give me your elevator pitch on how you would like to see the FDA approval system change in order to bring innovative drugs to the market sooner? Well, I'd like to say all we need to do is get rid of the amendments, but because the FDA has gone to court so many times, these amendments are almost part of case law. So really the only way to go, I think, is to take the approval power away from the FDA and turn it into a certifying agency. And, you know, other certifying agencies will come forward too. In fact, some of the consumer Groups have been very, very good at predicting which drugs will work. Uh, the Abigail Alliance, for example, has predicted uh, years before the FDA approved these 40 cancer drugs that they would be approved and that they were very effective. So if a consumer group can do that, obviously a group that was, you know, full of scientists trying to certify the drug is going to do a much better job. So people who want to listen to the FDA and wait for the FDA, they could do that if the FDA was a certifying agency. And when it gave its seal of approval, then they could take the drugs. But people who couldn't wait because they're dying or because their condition is such they think it's worth the risk, they could take drugs at any stage in the in the process. And, of course, uh, many of them would rely on the certification agencies that would spring up and, and really are in place now to some extent. Uh, if the FDA approval was not necessary for marketing. I don't know if this is possible to answer, but I mean, how would things be different if we didn't have those amendments? Would we have, do you think by now, let's say a cure for Lou Gehrig's disease? Would we have a cure for Parkinson's disease or even some cancers? I think cancers would be very different. Cancer treatment would be very different today because one of the things the FDA has been very aggressive about is going after medical doctors who, in treating their patients, have figured out something that they think is going to work. Um, there's, a, there's a doctor in Houston, um, Dr. Brzezinski, who's been hauled into court several times by the FDA, even when he was complying with their protocols. And, you know, he was, he was used, he, what he found basically is that there was a substance in uh, the urine of healthy patients that the cancer patients didn't have, and so he was using that to treat his patients and, you know, he was making it in the laboratory, and, and he, you know, he was having great success. But the FDA has hauled him into court so many times, he's, you know, he's really in a difficult place financially because it's very expensive to fight the FDA, and, and they've, they've done that with many, many medical doctors who think they have something new for cancer. So I think one of the big things that would be different is cancer. Mary, a real pleasure meeting you. Thank you for spending some time. I hope we can do this again. Death by Regulation. Where do we get the book? Well, of course, you can get it on Amazon, or you can go to my website, ruart.com, R-U-W-A-R-T.com. Thank you so much, Mary. And thank you.
When we come back, Jason Louv, John D. and the Empire of Angels, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us.